thank you very much for your welcome again. Uh, two down, one to go. Um, I'm really delighted uh, to be able to share with you some thoughts about the new world roots of world Christianity a resurgence that is uh, still going on as we are speaking. And if I may be uh, allowed to just say one more word, a plug about the Oxford series in the study of world Christianity. Several years ago, Oxford University Press agreed to launch a new book series dedicated to the promotion, to the scholarly promotion uh, of world Christianity as a new field, as a new emerging field. And I presented the proposal to Oxford and they accepted it, uh, some series auditor. Um, editor of the series, and to take my own medicine, I volunteered to write the first volume in that series, and that book came out last year called Disciples of All Nations, Pillars of World Christianity. Um, it's nearly 400 pages. Oxford is selling it for under $20, which is amazing. Um, and it just shows their commitment to the series and to the idea uh, of world Christianity itself. Today I want to share with you uh, some thoughts about Christianity and the moral empire of America. Uh, is America an imperial power, as it were? Um, the early Americans' involvement with the continent of Africa was motivated by the felt need to bring new world slavery to an end. Um, Thomas Jefferson observed that history offered few precedents for America's experiment uh, experience with slavery and race, and so America must look for an answer from within its own intellectual resources and from the empowerment that the logic of freedom afforded. Can America be free and be slaveholding at the same time was the fundamental question. And people like Benjamin Rush of Pennsylvania, Philadelphia, uh, if you remember his statement that the war is over, but the battle is not. And that battle for freedom has to do basically with slavery. Perhaps with a little imagination and commensurate national will, the colonization without empire would work. There is no precedent for it, but as I said, America itself as an idea was unprecedented. The pragmatic impasse over abolition in the antebellum South carried over from the Revolutionary War would inescapably collide with the New World creed about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And so it came about that the earliest pioneers of colonization as the religious equivalent of empire, the moral equivalent of empire, were New World defenders of the Constitution, many with a very long hand in slavery. While some circles in early America promoted colonization from the crass motive of wanting to save slavery in the South, others saw a higher moral principle in the idea of colonization. None more was more eloquent uh, on this than Robert Finley, a retired Presbyterian minister from Baskin Ridge, New Jersey. Uh, in the exiled children of Africa, now marooned in the New World, Finley, so not merely the heirs to a temporal, but to an eternal legacy. They used flowery language in those days. We don't do that anymore. <laughs> but uh, 
just put on your historical hat for a minute and step, uh, kind of time warp, uh, step into that world. Um, the uh, Finley was quite uh, convinced that um, those possessing the virtues of natural and social affection, uh, the Africans in the New World, had also the capacities for high improvement and the joys of an immortal state. I'm using his language. Um, in 1816, Finley mounted for the purpose a public campaign to redress the condition of free Africans in America. With their number increasing greatly and with the corresponding dis deterioration of the conditions under which they lived, Africans should be repatriated to the continent of their origin where they stood a better chance to fulfill their destiny as a free people, the place where, and I quote Finley again, their contracted minds will expand and their natures rise. A threefold benefit would attend a repatriation scheme. First, America would be rid of an undesirable population. Second, Africa would benefit from the introduction of a people partly civilized and Christianized. And third, the freed blacks themselves would rise to their proper manhood. And you can tell from this language that this whole idea of colonization was very controversial. Uh, many blacks uh, opposing it, as well as whites, saying this is a cop-out. Um, this is America's way of saying that in order to be free, you have to pay the penalty of repatriation to Africa. So it's very controversial. Finley arrived in Washington, D.C. in December 1816 to buttonhole President James Madison and also Henry Clay, John Calhoun, Daniel Webster, General Lafayette, Elias Boudinot Caldwell, who was the clerk of the Supreme Court, and other influential public figures, and he invited them to a prayer meeting where he was earnestly engaged in prayer Amidst open ridicule and incredulity, Finley remained unshaken, saying to skeptic and friend alike, I know this scheme is from God. The official account of his contributions to colonization says that Finley's election as a vice president of the society that was established to promote colonization was a small, inadequate token of his real worth. Finley, they said, was the epitome of colonization. Early Americans' anxiety about empire equated empire with old world tyranny and vice. And they worked themselves into lather about the United States needing to keep clear of imperial entanglements. America's involvement in world affairs went to the argument should be for enlightened reasons to reform and to elevate others not to dominate and to exploit them, as Europe did. Finley gave voice to this anti-imperial moral sentiment. European nations, he said, had established colonies around the world for the selfish purpose of bringing strength, fame, and honor to themselves. But American colonization would be different in being the exception to the law of the vanity of nations. 
America was destined to fulfill the exalted responsibilities of a spiritual empire, to build an empire from the habits of the heart, to use Tocqueville's phrase, and to redeem with the light of liberty and without the stigma of imperial selfishness. Finley assured friends and allies that America would wield not the corrupt sword of power and domination, but that of righteousness and self-sacrifice. America would be a light to other nations, the symbol of every blessing, civil and religious, and would lead by ideals and moral example rather than by force and subterfuge. By entering upon its divinely appointed course of world deliverance, America would join the stream in which the current was pulling the other nations in the world towards reform of their corrupt societies and the eradication of gloomy superstitions. America was different from other nations, not simply materially or militarily, but morally and spiritually. With reference to African colonization, Finley thought it was Africa's turn to be drawn into the transforming net of American benevolence, which would allow America to return to a much injured and much aggrieved Africa, its absent sons and daughters, as tokens of restoration. Happy America, Finley intoned, if she shall endeavor not only to rival other nations in arts and arms, but to equal and exceed them in the great cause of humanity. Finley's exultant faith in America's greatness bore no relationship to the relatively undeveloped state of the country at that early stage of the history of the Republic. European visitors, for example, saw Washington as a city of magnificent spaces. Its inhabitants, about 8,000 at the time, mostly poor Irish laborers and blacks, apt to fall victim to the bilious fevers that ooze from its marshlands. Thus Finley's upbeat optimism, striking against the background of the nation's as yet untapped potential, was inspired by the free-floating patriotic conviction that America was intended for lofty ends, ends as yet beyond the reach of living men and women, and all the more precious for lying in the future. It is the virtue of faith in a better tomorrow as Tom Paine declared, actually, from Europe about the American Revolution, America, he said, is the Adam of the New World. In an opinion piece published in the American Colonization Magazine, the colonization of free blacks is distinguished from in the imperial tradition of the old world. And I quote a few lines from this uh, editorial from the American Colonization um, document. Against the colonial systems of the nations of Europe, a very decided and well-founded uh, and well-founded has ever prevailed amongst American politicians. The advantages occasionally afforded by the colonies to the commerce and navigation of their mother countries have been more than counterbalanced by the fierce and protracted contest to which they have so often given rise. The continued restlessness of the, and the ultimate struggle for relief that have sometimes resulted from a long and continued state of colonial dependence have rendered it doubtful whether remote settlements established for commercial purposes 
and regulated and commercial principles are productive of very great advantages to any nation whatsoever. This is the argument against being an imperial power. And it will be a matter of very serious regret, the opinion piece went on, should the pride of foreign conquest or the spirit of commercial enterprise ever seduce us from the wholesome principles which have hitherto regulated our conduct on this subject. Few contemporary movements could march or rival the effectiveness of the American colonization society, created with that name amidst much self-questioning in December 1816. In terms of political sophistication, organizational skill, public relations impact, grassroots appeal, civic engagement, the ACS, the American Colonization Society, was without peer. Skeptical of the whole scheme from the beginning, John Adams nevertheless called the ACS's mass appeal a trap for popularity. Finley was a master strategist and a public relations genius, and his effect on the new nation was considerable. The highest and the most august assemblies in the land both political and ecclesiastical, join ranks with the movement, General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church, the Methodist General Conference, the Baptist General Association, the General Convention of the Protestant Episcopal Church, the legislatures of Virginia, Maryland, Tennessee, Georgia, Ohio, New Hampshire, and New Jersey, all of them joined Finley in endorsing the society at a remarkable man. In language striking for its opportune blending of the ends of domestic tranquility, national harmony, righteous enterprise, benevolent paternalism, and civil justice, the assurances of colonization resonated with the norms of private and public virtue. Colonization allowed for a strange and otherwise unnatural alliance between friend and foe of slavery. With the newly minted conviction of Republican virtue, friends could defend the humanity of the black with a concession to their foes of repatriation. Removal would unfetter America's conscience, fulfill the promises of the Declaration of Independence, and heal Africa's in injury all at the same time. Accordingly, removal was encouraged. And there's a statement here from Henry Clay, um, um, which I'm going to skip. Uh, it's a long statement. Um, not surprisingly, from this elevated American vantage point, the vision of Africa that emerged was appropriately rosy. When extended to Africa, America's civilizing mission would release Africa's suppressed greatness and its thwarted historical mission. Africa, too, shall be great. <laughs> kind of American optimism. Everybody is going to play a part in the great march of civilization. And there is nothing racist about this, notice. There's nothing racist about this. Everyone, including Africa, especially Africa, which had been damaged by slavery, for that very reason, Africa would be equipped 
with the moral resources to play its part in the march of civilization. One fervent anti-slavery campaigner employed the device of historical hyperbole to prick the conscience of his audience for the purpose of eliciting support for the cause. His views reflect his anxious impatience with the prevailing racial stereotypes of blacks. And I quote just a few lines from this. Again, it's a long quote. With the Africans, uh, this opinion piece started, civilization in its higher forms originated. It's amazing. To them may be traced the great events which led to the social well-being of the civilized world, to the establishment of the whole framework of political mechanism, which is necessary to give motion, steadiness, and permanence to the social machine. While Carthage and Thebes are remembered, while the monuments of Africa's ancient grandeur tower to heaven amidst her desert sands, while her forgotten art stand chiseled in the eternal rocks, while her mummies are pirated from her tombs to be displayed in the museums of Europe and America, while the renown of our pharaohs is proclaimed in holy writ, while the names of Hannibal, Hanno, Jugurtha, Terence, Origen, Tertullian, Augustine, and Cyprian are prominent in history, while Ethiopia looks out from behind the clouds of antiquity, beaming with the splendors of civilization, and while the god Buddha, an African of the Negro race, in all his past and features is worshipped by 200 million of the human race of another species, the world must yet have some reverence for such a people. Colonization. Now, you have to remember that these views were being propagandized, propagated against the stereotypes <laughs> that had pervaded uh, society. Now, these flowery sentiments represented a contrived rhetorical attack on prevailing prejudice. The facts of the case are stated largely in an imaginary sort of way. Yeah, the motives of philanthropic solidarity with the Africans seem genuine. Colonization in this understanding would be an act of historical retrieval and restoration. Accordingly, in an address before the Colonization Society, in tones resonant with high national purpose, Robert Stockton, a grandson of the Stockton who signed the Declaration of Independence, um, said, uh, and I quote, we too, sir, this was in Congress, we too, sir, have a moral debt contracted by our ancestors formidable in its origin, which has been daily accumulating. And if we desire that this young day's happiness may not be succeeded by a wretched imbecility, and that our constitution, the sublimest structure for the pro promulgation and propagation of human rights the world ever saw, the very capital of human freedom, shall be first completed and then endure through the lapse of ages. Let us not presume on the tranquility of today. Let it not be said 
that in spite of youth and strength of manhood, America as a young nation perished of a heart blackened by atrocity and ossified by countless cruelties to the Indian and the African. Robert Stockton. Empire as a moral idea would offer the new anxious republic a second chance to redeem itself on slavery, especially when action on that front would expand America's moral influence in the world generally. Empire must proceed, therefore, by private philanthropy, not by government edict. And this was the intellectual background of the founding of the colony of Liberia um, in 1821 as an American colony. Its first governor was Yehudi Ashman of New Haven, Connecticut, who arrived in Liberia in 1822. Ashman was converted at the age of 17 in one of the Methodist revivals and later studied at Bangor uh, for the priesthood of the, of the Episcopal Church. 1822, if you remember, was a fateful year for slavery in America, the year of the famous slave plot in Charleston, South Carolina, fomented by Denmark Vesey. Betrayed, Denmark Vesey and 34 of his ringleaders were arrested and hanged. The incident stiffened the resolve against emancipation in the South and heightened demands for the removal of free blacks from the South altogether. Ashmon tried valiantly to defend Liberia against hostile chiefs who felt cheated out of their land by the buccaneering tactics of the Americans. Equally menacingly, Spanish slave ships plied the coastal strip and hovered in the neighborhood opposed to the idea of Liberia as a free settlement. For necessary safeguard, Ashman summoned American warships to patrol the coastline, and with regard to enemy chiefs, he thought armed protection was futile as a long-term measure, and so he tried conciliation. He met with limited success there and had to repulse several attacks on the colony. As if external danger was not real enough, the colony was racked by internal dissension among the settlers, and Ashman was called upon to exercise a strong hand to quell the unrest. So Liberia, in other words, started inauspiciously. <laughs> um, it was ha having to fight a war on three fronts, uh, against Spanish slavers, um, against um, the hostile chiefs who felt they were cheated out of their land, and against internal quarrels uh, among the settlers themselves. As a response to the trouble, the society sent out Reverend Randolph Gurley on a one-man fact-finding mission. Gurley, described as one who wrote mightily with the pen and played havoc with the purse, should never employ someone like that at Baylor, um, was also from New Haven and a graduate of Yale. He was a long-standing supporter of the Colonization Society, noted as an editor and an orator with national and international influence. Gurley stayed for 10 days in Liberia before returning to America to submit his report. In a letter published in 1827, Benjamin Silliman of Yale, the founder of the Scientific American uh, Journal, an eminent scientist of his day, 
supported also the idea of African colonization um, uh, as a salve for the Christian conscience. Even when the evidence is contradictory, Americans were determined to make a distinction between themselves and the Europeans on the matter of empire. On the occasion, for example, of the admission of Texas into the Union in 1845, um, thus overturning the independence that Texas had gained from Mexico in 1836, and Texas has never recovered from that, by the way. An editorial piece expressed the sentiment of American exceptionalism when it said that American expansionism was different from European colonialism. And I quote from the editorial, uh, uh, 1827. It is looked upon as an aggression and all the bad and odious features of the habit of thought Europeans associate with aggressive deeds are attributed to it. Um, sorry, this was an editorial in the New York Morning News of October 1845. But no American, continuing with the editorial, but no American aggression can stab the patriot to the heart, nerve the arm of a Koshuko, or point the reclamation of a Burke. Our way, <laughs> said the New York uh, Morning Post, our way lies not over trampled nations, but through desert wastes, to be brought by our industry and energy within the domain of art and civilization. America was merely occupying a desert in Texas. We take from no man the reverse rather. We give to man. It was the sort of view that crystallized in 1846 Monroe Doctrine, Manifest Destiny, that, that was enunciated by President James Monroe, saying that America was entitled to territorial expansion and to political influence as sanctioned by heaven. The Harvard historian Frederick Merck stated that the continentalist and imperialist doctrines of expansion as expressed by Manifest Destiny, were not a true reflection of America's national spirit, for they involved aggression and vainglory. Rather, says Mark, a far truer expression of the national spirit was mission, because, and I quote, it was idealistic, self-denying, hopeful of divine favor for national aspirations, though not sure of it. It made itself heard most authentically in times of emergency, of ordeal, of disaster. Its language was that of dedication, dedication to the enduring values of American civilization. It's an unlikely source from which to get an endorsement for the idea of mission. America's conception of itself as a virtuous nation is challenged by the burdensome, burdensome sense of power America controls. And it's severely tested when the exercise of military power ends in disaster. A period of soul searching follows in which commentators will agonize openly about the spiritual cost to America's virtuous heritage. Conor Cruz O'Brien, who died recently, pointed out that no an Irish um, writer 
United Nations official and editor of the Observer newspaper um, in London. Conor Cruz O'Brien said that no European writer would be likely to claim innocence as a characteristic of his or her country. Whereas in America, innocence is not just a mere mawkish conceit. It represents a powerful and active ferment of meaning that has worked throughout American history. American innocence is not about being free from sin, from guilt or moral wrong, which by the way is the dictionary definition of, of innocence, but about being chosen for a moral end. That idea of innocence first came to America with the English Puritans, for whom Milton spoke when he wrote about England as a new Zion out of which should be proclaimed and sounded the first tidings and trumpet to all Europe. The idea of innocence went sour in England as a result of the experience of the Commonwealth under Oliver Cromwell. But Bishop Berkeley indicated that America was the inheritor of the idea. In his verses on the prospect of planting arts and learning in America, Bishop Berkeley wrote about America thus. Westward, the course of empire takes its sway. The first four acts already passed. A fifth shall close the drama with the day. Time's noblest offspring is the last. It is America. Innocence as America's peculiar attribute is something yet to be realized and achieved after a process of trial and refinement which is necessary because of old world European corruption. American innocence is not determined by the historical record. It is something that is mortgaged to the future and is a function of the American character. It is no accident that while the Oxford English Dictionary defines innocence in terms of moral exemption from sin, Noah Webster's Dictionary defines it in terms of purity of the heart. Very different. For the Oxford English Dictionary, innocence is a function of being. For Webster, it is a question of character and attitude. One could be innocent by virtue of one's goals and intentions. In a world of good and evil, American innocence sides with good against evil. America's role in history is to prove that good will overcome evil, that goodwill trumps hate. As James Fallows puts it in his evaluation of Sino-American relations, Americans lack tragic imagination an idea echoed by Marilyn Robinson when she wrote, Americans never think of themselves as sharing fully in the human condition, and therefore as beset as all humankind is beset. That's really what is meant by American exceptionalism. The difference, I think, is absolutely crucial to understanding America's view of its place in history. Paradoxically, it is not so much in material things that America is best equipped to find resources with which to respond to the challenge of diversity as in the qualities of mind and spirit that have defined American character. In a penetrating essay on George Santayana, 
Lionel Trilling of Columbia University, <laughs> two generations ago, describes this American characteristic spirit as something very different from that found, for example, in the English Romantics, who represent the human spirit with images soaring on a mountain peak in order to effect an escape from the bondage of Earth, from attachments to the mundane. Americans seek the opposite, attachment to the Earth, dedication to the mundane. Not like the Romantics. Trilling's description of the American spirit seems valid. He argues that for the American consciousness, the world is the natural world of the spirit laid out to be just that, as a baseball diamond or a tennis court is laid out for a particular kind of activity. And what the American wins is not enjoyed as a possession, but rather cherished as a trophy. The European sees the world as hard and as resistant to spirit, but whatever can be won is to be valued, protected, used, and enjoyed. But the high valuation of the material life makes, as it were, the necessity for its negation in an intense respect for the life of the spirit. Americans are pragmatic, but they are also idealistic, as we know. By the end of, by the mid-19th century, stirrings of manifest destiny crystallized in the Monroe Doctrine had gripped the imagination of the leaders. William Seward, Lincoln's Secretary of State, declared in January 1853, the tendency of commercial and political events invites the United States to assume and exercise a paramount influence in the affairs of the world situated in this hemisphere. That is, to become and to remain a great continental power. The advance of the country towards that position constitutes what, in the language of many, is called progress. And that position is exactly what is meant by the idea of manifest destiny. The point to be made here is that the colonization efforts in Liberia were really buoyed by this American spirit of philanthropy, of benevolence, but above all, by the American idea of innocence. <laughs> if you establish a colony at the heart, at the source of the slave trade, and you basically supply it with enough goodwill, humanitarian zeal, uh, the colony will succeed. But as you know, Liberia failed abysmally. And I think, in conclusion, we should analyze, at least I should set out some of the reasons for that failure. First, I think it's clear that private philanthropy alone could not really contend against the powers of slavery. Slavery was perhaps the most important economic activity uh, of the late 18th and early 19th century. The second reason, I think, for Liberia's collapse has to do with the motivation for its founding. The idea that the creation of Liberia would help to solve the dilemma of slavery in America. Um, there are some comments on this by Tocqueville in his Democracy in America about Liberia um, as a problem for American slavery. 
The third reason, I think, is Liberia's failure to connect meaningfully with hinterland Africa. And if I may revert to uh, an old idea of mine, there was very little attempt to translate Christianity into the languages, indigenous languages of Liberia. And as a result, Christianity remained a hothouse phenomenon, um, overheating from its protected enclave in Liberia, and therefore it was not surprising that it shriveled. Another reason, very important for Liberia's failure, was of course the Americo-Liberians who came there uh, to, if you like, uh, discourage and repress slavery in Africa, themselves participated in slavery. Uh, and it was, it reached such scandalous levels that in the 1920s, the League of Nations mounted a special inquiry uh, into Liberian slavery. Um, I may here refer to a comment by Bishop Ajay Crowther, uh, probably the greatest uh, churchman of the 19th century from Nigeria. Crowther said that from his observation, it seemed that former slaves made very bad masters. And he wondered whether that observation, uh, Crowther was a very gentle, very perceptive, extraordinarily gifted man um, who was very interested in building bridges and communities. But he wondered whether, therefore, the roots of uh, slavery and enslavement ran so deep that the cure for it was not merely addressing the question of trade and commerce, but needing to lay a moral foundation for the rehabilitation of Africa itself. He quoted um, the book of Isaiah, I think chapter 61, um, in a memo he wrote in 1857 uh, as his motto for engaging in this anti-slavery campaign. And yet, underneath all of that, it's clear that the American heritage of freedom uh, was absolutely critical to the new foundation, the new society that was going to be created in Africa. As I argued in my lecture yesterday and introduced the idea in my lecture on Tuesday. What is very uh, important to stress is that America's view of society from the bottom up um, this view of society translated to Nigeria, I mean to uh, Liberia, ran into difficulty. Because the view of society that was put in place in Liberia was almost the opposite of this view. Liberia believed that with a constitution, with the Americo-Liberian elites, Christianity could be transmitted from the top down. And that if you preserved an elite, a ruling class, and you protect them, you would then protect the bounds of civilization. Um, and that went horribly wrong. And in a sense, it vindicates, I think, the, in a tragic way, in a very tragic way, it vindicates the correctness of the American view that the change that was needed was a change involving going from the bottom up. 
And finally, let me say a word or two, because I want to have time to have a conversation with you, a word or two about the impact of this on the missionary movement. The whole idea of Christendom, where Charlemagne, the emperor or the prince, would be the uh, architect, the agent for the transmission of Christian values, was an idea that was very, very hard to eradicate uh, in missionary societies in Europe. But America's involvement in Africa opened up the whole question of whether mission in the old medieval style was any longer viable. And for a very, very long time, as you know, um, America was regarded by Rome, by the Curia, by the Holy See, as a missionary domain. And uh, even I remember when John Paul II was pope, there was still fear uh, in Rome, in the Vatican, that America's ideas about Christianity were suspect. But as I told my Vatican friends at the time, uh, why don't you relax? America is not going to go away. But that idea, I am absolutely convinced, uh, has uh, proved not only viable, but has proved victorious and has shaped uh, the modern expansion and explosion of Christianity, not just in America, but in Asia and elsewhere. Uh, and Africa and elsewhere. And I suppose if I was to give a grade to America's efforts in colonization, um, I would put a footnote under my grade. Uh, and I would say that it shows the paradox of how America as a free republic was ill-adapted for the task and the business of empire, of running a colony. Liberia failed. Whereas Britain, without that heritage, succeeded so well in Sierra Leone in a corresponding case. And this paradox is uh, it's quite a difficult one to resolve. Uh, whether freedom, in the end, is compatible with uh, creating a society of free individuals uh, who are accountable to themselves for their own lives, for their own future, but surrounded by enemies who do not really value those, uh, those freedoms. And the best way I can summarize that is all of us are familiar with the problems we faced in the United States after 9-11 as to, and the question was, to what extent can a free society deal with the challenge of terrorism without sacrificing its values of freedom? So that's much closer home. And the same thing if you translate it to Liberia, it's the same thing. To what extent can Liberia as a free colony promote those values, promote those, propagate those values of freedom surrounded by a world in which those freedoms are not highly regarded. Um, and so Liberia really collapsed in the end. And out of the ruins of Liberia, a new beginning has been made on the 
Sarlene Johnson, the first elected uh, woman president in Africa. And the signs are hopeful that Liberia can recover um, this American heritage of freedom and especially the moral uh, values with which, uh, which inspired its founding. And on that note, I conclude. Thank you very much for your courtesy.